Join me now in the prayer for this man. Lord, we of course is all we bow before you now today. Lord, we exalt you that you are dead. We thank you, Lord, for the celebration that we have had of your son coming in the flesh. We praise you, Jesus, that you came. Lord, as we continue to focus on that advent, on that uh, moment that changed all of history, Lord. Looking back toward it and also forward toward your second advent someday at a time we don't know. But Lord, we trust is coming someday. Lord, in this time, we, as we wait in expectation as the church, we praise you for your word and guidance. We praise you for the one who's bringing it today and thank you for him. He's prepared your word for us. Lord, I pray for everyone here. Lord, that no one is here by chance, but everyone is here. As I, that I often praise you for, because there are no accidents and you're coming, Lord. Everyone is here to hear your word. Lord, it is prepared for our hearts, for our minds. Lord, so I pray that as we listen, you reach us. You hear it, Lord. And as your word promises, it would transform us as only your word can do. Thank you, God. Thank you, Pastor Mike, as he comes and I simply pray, Lord, that uh, he will um, understand that it is you working through the word and not him. Lord, that your, your goodness um, throughout this week as you help to prepare, Lord, um, with just for this time, exactly. And not, not, a, not a moment was wasted in that process, Lord. Thank you uh, for helping us prepare. All is a prayer. Be seated if you're not already, children. Praise God. Uh, it's a joy to be with you today on this second day of Christmas, the first Sunday of Christmas. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I will share that with you in just a moment. But as you think about that, grab your Bibles if you haven't already and turn and open them to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And we're going to use as our text this morning, verses 1 through 7. Luke 2, 1 through 7. Now that you're comfortable, would you stand yet again with me as we read Luke 2, 1 through 7 together. I invite you to read with me, and at the end of that reading, I'll say that this is the word of the Lord. And I invite you to respond in true praise and worship by saying thanks be to God. Let's read this passage together. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated again. As I said, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. And welcome to the second day of Christmas and the first Sunday of Christmas this year. 
We have progressed together over the last several weeks through our season of Advent and have arrived at the season of Christmas. And you may have thought that Christmas was over, uh, but it has, in fact, just only now begun. Have you ever heard of the 12 days of Christmas? Believe it or not, those are not the 12 days leading up to Christmas Day, but actually are the days represented as the 12 days coming away from Christmas Day. Christmas Day being actually the first day of Christmas. And if you have heard of the first of the 12 days of Christmas, most of us, if it was not part of our cultural heritage to celebrate the 12 days of Christmas, at least know the phrase likely through our introduction, perhaps in elementary school, of the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas. On the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me a partridge in a pear tree. You know the one. Okay, I'm getting some looks like, please, Pastor, don't go any further. In case you're wondering, as some people like myself may do, uh, this year, the cost of purchasing all of the gifts listed in the song, uh, you know, if one of you really felt like expressing your undying affection for your true love this holiday season, is up 5.7% from last year. Uh, according to the PNC, which has been calculating the cost for the last 38 years, bringing the grand total in 2021 to $41,205.58. And although the doves, hens, and geese are all up by around or over 50%, the most expensive gift on the list is still, uh, believe it or not, more than the Lord's, a leaping, is still the seven swans a swimming, coming in at a whopping $13,125. Apparently, you can still uh, purchase for your enjoyments uh, uh, the Lords of Leaping as well as the Swans of Swimming. Now, I once heard it said of the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas, that regardless of the monetary value of the gift, that whoever gave this person so much waterfowl must actually hate them. Uh, and so, anyways, that's neither here nor there, but it's offered up for your consideration. Uh, we are actually in that season of Christmas called the 12 Days of Christmas. And so the celebration of this time is actually meant to extend from Christmas Day through to what we call Epiphany, which is on the day after the 12th, or it is the 12th day of Christmas, after 12th night, which is essentially Epiphany Eve where we celebrate or commemorate the time that the wise men came from afar and brought their gifts to Jesus. And uh, it's funny, I did not, I was not raised with this uh, cultural tradition. I probably was among those that thought that the 12 days of Christmas were the 12 days leading up to Christmas Day. Uh, and for a long time, even in beginning to uh, appreciate and celebrate the season of Advent, that for me really was Christmas season. But in fact, our Advent season is supposed to be a season of anticipation, uh, of expectation, and the season of Christmas is meant to be a celebration of fulfillment, uh, where we have been anticipating 
uh, the second coming of our Lord by looking back at the expectation of his first coming, leading up to this time now that we celebrate the fulfillment of the fact that God did not leave his people in, hear me, pregnant expectation continually, but brought about the fulfillment of that expectation through the birth of his son, Jesus Christ. And so now we're here. And so I ask you, do you ever feel like there's so much buildup for Christmas and then it's over before you can blink your eyes? I believe this is in part why people experience what is known as Christmas burnout. Uh, because in that season of, of anticipation, what is meant to be uh, expectation for the coming of the king, uh, we spend all of that time actually preparing for this one day. And in that one day, everything happens, and, and then it's just over. Um, and really, uh, we have actually been invited into a prolonged season of celebration, not so that we can uh, uh, just be totally worn out by the end of those 12 days, but so that we might spread our celebration out and enjoy a restful celebration of the fulfillment of Christ coming uh, to us. And so as you, uh, you plan and prepare and shop and cook and bake and wrap and hide and sneak and buy and travel, and it's all sort of packed into just one or two days and then it's all over and life is, you attempt to go back to normal at least for a few days before you kind of do it all over again for New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. Uh, many people uh, having to go back to work in between those two times and, and try and just figure it out. But traditionally, for Christians, the season of Christmas was never over so quickly. And so as I said, we are today on day two of the traditional 12 days of Christmas, a two-week-long Christian holiday, which will culminate in what is called Twelfth Night on the Eve of Epiphany, January 5th, before the season of Epiphany begins on January 6th, uh, which is, as I said, that celebration of the revelation of Jesus to the wise men, something that we'll be looking at next week as we gather together. But we're going to take our time over the next two weeks. We're going to camp out, so to speak. We're going to linger here in this Christmas season. We're going to sing some more Christmas hymns and carols together over the next two weeks and not rush away from the nativity scene, but rather dwell here for a moment and enjoy the celebration. And so today we're focusing, as your text has already uh, revealed to you, we're focusing on the earthly birth and incarnation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A gift, uh, mind you, if we think about the 12 uh, gifts given over 12 days in the song. The gift of Jesus is a gift so valuable that should we celebrate and give gifts to one another every day for the rest of our lives, we would never be able to give more than God has this one time and this single gift to humanity, the gift of himself through the Son, Jesus Christ. The greatest gift, the greatest miracle, and yet here in Luke 2, in this small window that we get a vantage point from in our text today, at least for a moment, from our view, this cosmic miracle, 
the greatest gift and miracle of all time in these seven verses is so private and so intimate that it seems like, in, in, at least in, at the moment, that this cosmic miracle will go completely unnoticed except for Mary and Joseph. And we know that this will not remain the case. But I would like for us to focus in on this one moment for just a bit before we move on. Think about it. The creator of the universe has just stepped into time and space and history. And we have maybe more detail about the widow woman who baked cakes for Elijah than we do about this moment. Now it's interesting, even as we read it, you can almost get the almost headline newspaper account of what's going on here. It reads very much like news because it is in fact news. Luke is reporting. He is reporting on events that actually happened. And so he does not build into it drama that is not there. Now there is a hint of drama there at the end. They end up in this particular place. Why? Because there was no room for them at the end. There's drama in the fact that they are having to travel at this time when Mary is great with child. And this is all being done. Why? Because some tyrannical governor decides that he wants to number the people. Why does he want to number the people? Except to extract from them a tax. A tax, uh, an amount of money that was uh, supposed to belong to the Lord and not to any Roman governor. And yet, even in this, we can see God's sovereign hand because neither Joseph or Mary were from Bethlehem properly. In fact, in their own life, we don't know if they ever had traveled to Bethlehem before this moment. But because they were from the house and the lineage of David, it was to Bethlehem that they were summoned to be numbered, yes, by a tyrannical Roman governor, and yet, by the sovereign hand of God, because God had promised that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. And so there is much that's happening here, and yet it's given with such short, succinct, news-like detail in Luke's account. Again, because that's what he's doing. He's reporting the news of Jesus' birth. And yet here, in this moment, the single greatest cosmic event in the history of history that is taking place, and the only witnesses at this particular moment are Mary and Joseph and possibly some farm animals. Now it's interesting to look at and compare and contrast the different gospel accounts when it comes to Jesus coming to earth. There are differences in all the gospel accounts, not in a way uh, that brings discrepancy or casts a shade of doubt or to question events, but they each represent a difference in focus. We've talked about this some before, but I'll bring it back to your remembrance now. Mark's account, arguably the first gospel account written, 
does not address the birth of Jesus at all. Uh, if you go to Mark, you, you won't find the nativity scene there. Uh, it picks up the narrative with John the Baptist and Jesus' own baptism before the beginning of his active ministry. In Mark's gospel account, uh, compared to all the other accounts uh, in the gospels, moves the quickest. It's, it is rapid in its pace. And it's marked by the use of the word immediately, which is used repeatedly and gives us this quick and efficient view of Jesus' earthly ministry, his subsequent death and resurrection, while attributing and announcing Jesus as the Son of God at both the beginning and the close of his gospel account. That's Mark. Compare and contrast that with Matthew and Luke, which make up the rest of what we call the synoptic gospels. Matthew and Luke seem to borrow from Mark's gospel, but then each have their own separate focuses, with Matthew obviously writing for a Jewish audience, while Luke writes for a Greek and Gentile audience. Both address the birth and nativity narratives, but highlight different events. And so last week we looked at Matthew 1, we saw Matthew's account leading up to the birth of Jesus, and what did we see? We saw that Matthew is careful to show the connection of the events that are transpiring with Jesus to the Old Testament scriptures, quoting the prophets and showing the fulfillments of these messianic prophecies in Jesus' birth, life, ministry, and even in his death and resurrection as you continue through his gospel account. Our text today is in Luke's gospel. And because Luke is writing for a Greek audience, you won't find him as much going and saying, and this was done to fulfill what the prophet said when he said this and blah, blah, blah. Instead, what we see Luke do is he zeroes in on Jesus' humanity, not to the neglect of his divinity, mind you, but rather showing that indeed, though he was God in the flesh, or is rather, excuse me, he was and is also fully man, being born of Mary. Because by his own testimony in Luke chapter 1, we see that Luke is compiling information. It's almost as if uh, Luke went and actually interviewed all the different first uh, uh, people who had first-person accounts of what was going on with Jesus. Likely, uh, these events, as retold by Luke, are coming from Mary herself, and her presence features heavily in the first couple of chapters, here even preserving her song of praise, the Magnificat, in the previous chapter for generations of believers to sing with her and likewise to call her blessed, even as Scripture says that she is. So great is Luke's focus on Jesus' humanity that over the course of what we now would call 24 chapters in Luke's account, he names Jesus as the Son of Man the same number of times, 24 times in Luke's gospel account where he called Jesus the Son of Man a name that, though he is writing to a Greek audience, is also borrowed from the prophet Daniel. And as it is here in Luke, chapter 2, 1 through 7, 
we see this plainly. What is happening, except that we are given the account the human birth, the birth of Jesus as the son of Mary. And here in this simple account, given without really any pomp or circumstance, and just the slightest hint of drama, as I said, we simply see the beautiful yet normal birth of an infant human baby. The question becomes, why was it so important for Luke to show this side, to highlight the humanity of Jesus for a Greek audience? The reason is that to a Greek audience, nothing could be so audacious to the Greek hearer and to the Greek mind than that God, who is transcendent above and outside of humanity, would deign to put on flesh. Because in the Greek mind, which is the birthplace of Gnosticism, something that we talked about when we went together through 1 John, in the Greek mind, true telos, or purpose, is to leave the flesh and all earthly things behind. Because in the Greek mind, matter, the things which make up this earthly existence, is bad. Earth is bad. Flesh is bad. And their greatest good that they can conceive of is to actually leave this earthly body and this earthly place behind to transcend, as it were, to other things. But here, Luke shows us Jesus, born of a woman, born in the flesh, and in the end, after his death and resurrection, Luke will show at the end of his gospel account that Jesus did not, in the end, shed his human flesh to be rid of this disgraced thing, but rather embodied a glorified flesh after his resurrection, the self-same flesh that he was crucified and died in. It was not a new body, but a glorified body, the self-same body that was formed in his mother's womb and was birthed by her in this nativity scene. He retained his flesh, and hear me, will retain it and remain in it for the rest of eternity. Luke chapter 24, picking it up in verse 36, you can see what I'm talking about. Luke is careful to highlight this moment at the end of his gospel account. Jesus has already appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus. They were amazed, seeing him revealed to them in the breaking of bread, picking it up in verse 36. After they rejoined the rest of the disciples, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. Now see, they, had, they knew that Jesus had died. That was, it was, there was no question about it. They witnessed his crucifixion. They saw the spear piercing his side. They saw the blood and the water coming out. They saw him being taken down. 
They were there when he was entombed and he had been there for three days. And so now to see him standing before them, they thought that he must be a ghost. They were frightened as any of us would be. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Listen to this, touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they, were, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Luke goes to great pains to show us that Jesus never sheds this human flesh that he puts on, but was resurrected in glorified body and ascended to heaven in that self-same body, the same body that God formed in the womb of his mother, Mary. Now this would have blown the ancient Greek mind totally. Because for them, the greatest thing that could possibly happen was to get rid of the flesh. And yet here, Luke is proclaiming that God put it on, never to take it off again. Jesus put on humanity, not to shed it and leave it behind, but to take it upon himself for the rest of time so that he might always be our representative because he didn't just do this to blow Greek minds. There was a great purpose in Jesus putting on flesh and becoming a man. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 2 where the preacher here begins to give us a clue as to why this had to happen. Hebrews chapter two, picking up in verse 14, therefore, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of the Christ, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it was not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who likewise are being tempted. This is why we say that he came and he was born to die. Not in the same way that every person here is born to die, we may say rather morbidly yet truthfully, should the Lord tarry. But rather he came to die, not his own death, but the death that you and I deserve as sinners and rebels against the God of our creation. He was born for us that he might die condemned in our place. Though he himself was righteous and sinless, he became our perfect and spotless lamb who takes away and saves us from our sin. The writers of the Heidelberg Catechism in question and answer number 16 phrased it this way. Why must he, Jesus the Christ, be a true and righteous man? The answer they gave, he must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner he cannot pay for others. Luke carefully points us to this very point. If you look at the end of our text, Luke chapter 2, 1 through 7, going back to our original text. It says, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. He says that this child was wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in the manger. Swaddling cloths here refer to the garment worn closest to the body. When traveling, if someone died in route, this garment of swaddling cloths would be unraveled so that they could then completely wrap up the deceased person's body so that they may transport it to its final resting place. Jesus, from his birth, is wrapped in these symbols of death, and he will put them on once more and be laid down like a baby without his own... Uh, not under the power of his own body, but he will be placed, he will be laid down in the tomb. But as he promised, no one would take his life from him. But he himself chose to lay it down, to submit himself to the will of the Father, even unto death. And what did he say? He said, if I lay it down, I can do what? I can take it up again. He could pick it up again. And Jesus, though laid down under the power of those who placed him in the tomb, would raise up in the power of the Holy Spirit and not shed his flesh, but rather he would shed the grave clothes, the symbol of death, the symbol of this thing, which we've already read, uh, was this thing that held us in slavery that held the people of God, the seed of Abraham, in slavery and in fear of this death. 
Jesus would shed the symbol of that death. And I love this. What does it say in the scripture? That it was folded up and placed there where Jesus had laid in the tomb, ready to be put away. Why? Because Jesus would not need them again. And neither would all those who believe in him and his name, in his birth, his death, his resurrection for them and in their place. For all those who believe in his name, to them, God gave the power to become the sons of God. And those who believe in his name look forward to that blessed day when they too will shed the clothes that represent our death because of sin and put on life immortal, becoming like Jesus, raised to life eternal, where we will receive not a completely new body, but a glorified body, even as Jesus did. Louis Burkhoff, speaking of this ministry of Christ for us coming in human flesh in his systematic theology says only such a truly human mediator who had experimental knowledge of the woes of mankind meaning as the scriptures say he was tempted in every way such as we could enter sympathetically into all the experiences the trials and the temptations of man if he had not come in the flesh, if he had not been man, he would not have been our representative. Now there's so much going on here and we really could spend more time in Luke 2, 1 through 7, but I wanted you simply to see Luke's focus on the humanity of Jesus as he was born, this human birth of Jesus. But I do want us to see the transcendence of this moment. So would you turn to the right, just one book over to John's Gospel. John chapter 1. Now many would say that John's Gospel, likewise as Mark, has no nativity. But this is actually not true. John does recount the incarnation of Jesus but what John does is John does so well. Where Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us very sort of investigative, journalistic accounts of Jesus' birth and his life and his ministry, his death and his resurrection, John begins to put the pieces together and shows us the theological reality, the cosmic reality of what's going on he does that for us here in John chapter 1. What does it say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not Overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. 
He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. Where Luke highlighted the humanity of Jesus, John here highlights the divinity of Jesus as the eternal word present and partaking of the same self as the God who spoke the world into existence. And where Luke is silent on this point in the moment, John gives us the theological and cosmic reality of what is taking place in the incarnation and the birth of the, this Christ, this Jesus. And what does he say? He came to make God known. He came to make him known. The writer in Hebrews, the author in Hebrews, the preacher would say that at different times and different places, God spoke through the prophets. But now he has spoken to us through his very own son. Jesus came to make God known. He came to not only make God known, but for those who receive him to announce the good news that they could be transferred from being under the law which came through Moses to being under grace which came through him, through Jesus, the true and better Moses, who released us not from a human taskmaster in Egypt, but freed us from the bondage the law, of sin, and of death. Freed us in such a way that we may use the law for our good and joy and not be held under its condemnation. Here in John's gospel, we begin to understand what the writers in the Heidelberg Catechism will ask in the next question, question 17. The first question was what? Why? Must he be a true and righteous man, speaking of the Christ? The next question, question 17, why must he also be true God? The answer is so that by the power of his divinity, he might bear the weight of God's anger in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. This is what our Old Testament 
reading this morning in the prophet Isaiah was proclaiming to us that God was going to do. How was he going to do this? He was going to do it through the seed of David, through the Messiah, through Jesus. And a mere human could not have endured because in Jesus' death, he was not merely just being killed. It wasn't enough for him to just be executed. But we understand that in his crucifixion and in his suffering, he was what? He was taking up, he was draining to the depths the cup of God's wrath for us. And hear me. God's wrath towards sin is infinite. Is infinite. And so finite man alone could not consume what was infinite. He had to be God. There's no way any mere human could bear and fully satisfy God's wrath by nature, this wrath, because God's uh, wrath is a part of his nature. He himself is infinite, therefore his wrath is infinite in quality. In order to bear the weight of wrath, it was essential that the Savior not only be human, that he might represent us, but be divine so that he might be able to bear under the wrath of God. In order to satisfy this wrath, he had to offer a sacrifice of such value that God would be pleased to accept it. Only Christ as God could bring a sacrifice of infinite and eternal value to God so much that he could, as we read in Hebrews chapter 2, propitiate, be a total wrath-absorbing sacrifice for us and in our place. By virtue of Christ's divine nature, he is able to earn for us eternal life and favor with God. That is grace. People call grace what? Undeserved and unmerited favor. Now understand that favor is gift. Favor is an addition. Favor is not merely the, the erasure of something. It is the addition of something. Mercy is the erasure. Mercy comes and takes away that which we deserved negatively. That's mercy. We deserved punishment. And mercy is that we did not receive that which we deserved. Christ took that punishment for us. And our punishment was erased. That is mercy. But mercy is not all we received through our Savior. We received from Him grace. And I love John doesn't just say grace, but what? Grace upon grace. He has lavished us with grace. Why? Because not only did we not receive that which we justly deserve in the negative, but everything positive that Christ earned through his perfect righteous obedience was attributed to our account and we received as a gift God's favor. We did not deserve it. 
we have received it through faith in Jesus Christ. He is able, Christ is able to earn for us eternal life and favor with God by virtue of his divine nature. And the divinity of Christ means that he is able to be raised from the dead after conquering. Now here's the thing. Other people in the Bible were raised from the dead before Jesus. Lazarus was raised from the dead shortly before Jesus was. In fact, Lazarus was dead for a whole day longer than Jesus was dead. Here's the problem. Lazarus died twice. And every other person in Scripture that was raised from the dead was raised only to die yet again at a later point in time. Their resurrection was not an announcement of God's victory over death on our behalf. But Christ was raised to life immortal, imperishable. And he who was raised in glorified body would never die again. His resurrection did mean the victory, God's victory over death for us. And therefore, he is able to apply the benefits he has earned to us. In short, the answer is that Jesus had to be truly God so that he could satisfy God's wrath and secure for us righteousness and life. This is the great cosmic reality that is taking place at the same time that we look in Luke's gospel and all is quiet in a little nativity crash, in a little stable, be it cave or structure. In this moment, the greatest cosmic miracle is taking place. So let's go back to Luke 2. Because it doesn't remain quiet, does it? It says, and in the same region there were shepherds, verse 8, out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them in the glory of of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Listen to this, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. 
When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Two things I want us to draw from here, which give us an application today. What should our response be to these things? What's the first response that the shepherds had in the field that day? Let us go and see. Let us go and see. And this ought to be our response. This should be the response of our heart to hearing these things. Let us go and see. This is the news that has been proclaimed to us that God condescended in such a way that He would put on flesh, that he would come in the flesh so that he might be not only God up there somewhere over the rainbow looking over us, but he might be Emmanuel, God with us. That he would not only come and experience those things that we experience, but he might come and be tempted in every way such as we and leading up to his suffering for us and in our place because it wasn't enough that he would merely deign to put on flesh for us, but he would condescend to such a place that he would suffer for us and in our place. That he would, as Paul would write in Philippians, empty himself. Paul says, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, though he was equal with God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. This does not mean that he ceased being God, but rather speaks of his condescension coming to such a place that he would condescend to become man like us without giving up his divinity. By taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the news that has been proclaimed. And what should our response be? Our response should be the same as the shepherds. Let us go and see. Every time we pick up our Bibles, that should be what is in our heart. Let us go and see. This thing that we have heard that's been proclaimed through us, through the preaching of God's word, through the reading of God's word for all of our lives up to this point, as I open up this Bible again, let us go and see. Let us go and see if these things are true that have been proclaimed to us. Every time we come and we gather together and we sit in these chairs with one another and one comes to to proclaim the word of God, our hearts should be saying with those shepherds, let us go and see. Every time we come together and we partake in communion, And we've been told that this moment is a moment that we might fellowship, might have communion with God. May we lift up our 
hearts in Eucharist, in thanksgiving, in praise, and say, let us go and see. Every time we bow our heads or grasp one of our fellow brothers and sisters' hands in prayer, our hearts should be saying, let us go and see. We have been told that in Christ we have received every spiritual blessing, that all these things are hidden in him. Let us go and see. And the shepherds did. And what did they find? That everything that God had proclaimed to them was true. And if it was true, if the babe really was there, imagine this, wrapped in the symbol of death and laying in a manger of all places. And surely everything else must be true as well. And they believed. We know that they believed. Why? Because they went away joyfully. And this was their second response. They returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. And that should be our response as well. That as we go and as we see and as we return to this place, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, as we gather in homes with one another and break bread with one another throughout the week and pray with one another and share these things together again, as we begin to see God's answer to all these things, our response should likewise be glorifying and praising God for all that we have seen and heard. We have much to rejoice about in this Christmas season. And we have an opportunity over this, this time to really focus our minds and our hearts on this great news that has been proclaimed to us. I encourage you, go and see, study these things out. Don't take the birth of Christ for granted. Go to God in faith, believing that what he said is true, which is what? That through Jesus, the curse of the law has been lifted so that we might live in grace. And if that is true, and we are set free, then we have much to rejoice in. Amen? Amen. Christ the Lord was born for you. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you did not leave us guessing or wondering, but you proclaimed to us the thing that you were doing before it was done. And even as it happened, you proclaimed that it was and is what you had done. I pray, Lord, that you would fill our hearts with faith to believe, and that in believing, you would lead us in rejoicing with true gratefulness and hearts filled with thanksgiving to you for who you are and what you have done for us in Christ. In Jesus' name. God bless you as we move into a time of communion.